Let's return this evening to the book of Romans, the 11th chapter. I want you to open your Bibles to that portion of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 11 to 29. As I begin at verse 11 know that the Apostle Paul is speaking as he has in this section repeatedly of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. That's who he's referring to as he begins where I begin at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Or if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts 
and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the word of God. Amen. And all Israel shall be saved. Is this too good to be true? It's been a long time. A long time since these words were written. A long time for Israel to persist in her unbelief and rebellion against God. Is it too good to be true? All Israel shall be saved. As we return to Romans last week and as we began our studies in Romans 11, I sought, if I may put it this way, merely to give you permission to hope that Paul means precisely what it sounds like he means. We did that by way of a survey, a broad survey of the text, trying to initiate you to that which was being done in this passage. We saw how, G- how Paul speaks repeatedly in the passage of the Jews as still specially loved by God. They're called God's people, foreknown by him, beloved for the sake of the forefathers, and so on. We also saw how Paul links the future of the Jews with the future of the world. How those two things in his mind are linked in some way with this future time when the Jews will be restored must of necessity precede that day when all hope of salvation is over and the judgment of all men has begun. We've also seen in a broad way how Paul sees the glory of God as at stake in this question. The glory of God at stake in the salvation of the Jews. And this is a theme we'll be returning to. You've been asked to remember how chapter 11 ends. It ends with a song, as it were. An outburst of praise to God. And something about what Paul is saying about the Jews in chapter 9, 10, and 11 leads him to this great praise of God. Today, tonight... I want to look more carefully at two passages from the text in order to demonstrate that it is not too good to be true. That Paul means just what he sounds like he's saying, all Israel shall be saved. And if you will, you can put those two things in terms of the note of certainty that's found in the text and the word of mystery that's found in the text. Those two things will take up our time this evening. First, this note of certainty, or to put it a bit more elaborately, I'll put it this way. Paul speaks of Israel's future acceptance as something that is as certain as their present rejection. Their future acceptance by God is, in Paul's mind, as certain as their present rejection by God. Now, there's nothing that's more easily seen in the book of Romans than that the Jews, in the day in which Paul writes, are a lost nation. The fact that there are Jewish individuals and families, including some in the church at Rome, who had believed upon Jesus as Messiah, doesn't change the fact that for Paul, he can rightly speak of Israel in a corporate sense, Israel as a nation, and can say, They need salvation. That's my prayer for them. They're lost as a nation. Paul thinks in very 
appropriate biblical theological ways. He thinks of individuals. He also thinks of larger corporate entities. When he's speaking of the individuals among the Jews who have received salvation, he speaks of the elect or the remnant. But when he speaks of the nation, he speaks of Israel. Israel is lost. That is certain. As Paul writes, they have failed to obtain salvation. He puts it in verse 7 of chapter 11. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest, the greater number, that's such a vast number that they can rightly be spoken of as the whole, Israel failed to obtain salvation. That is certain. That's easily demonstrated. And yet the apostle speaks of their rejection by God in the present as something that's no more certain, no less certain than their future acceptance. Look at verse 11 with me again this evening. This is one of those places where Paul asks the rhetorical questions that we've come to know him to be fond of. And he asks this question, did they, he's speaking of Israel again, because he's just gotten finished telling telling us how in fulfillment of prophecy they've stumbled over the stumbling block and been hardened. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? This vast majority of Israelites who'd consciously rejected Jesus, they've stumbled. And as a result of this, Israel as a nation is outside of God's favor. But did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's his question. There's virtually no disagreement among commentaries that Paul's asking this question in verse 11. Has their failure to obtain salvation as a nation Is that a failure that's irreversible? Is that the end of the story? Will that be the concluding of their history before God? And how does he answer? Children, you know the way that Paul has answered. You've learned a little Greek in this series on Romans. His answer is, You've heard that before. Paul has said that at various points. He said that very strong, variously interpreted or variously translated saying, may it never be, God forbid, certainly not, by no means. However you translate it, it's an emphatic negation. No. But he's not content with just no. May generally talk. Now remember the things that Paul has said no to in the past. This is in company with some other things that he has wanted to strongly negate. I'll remind you, just listen. He asked the question early in the book, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? May genoita. He goes on, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us in another place? May genoita, he asks. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound in another place? May genoita. He asks, on another place, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? May genoita. He asks, is there injustice on God's part? May genoita. Now, when Paul answers with that characteristic phrase, he is answering in each case something that were it upheld, were it affirmed, 
would strike at the very character of God. The most recent place that he did that is in the beginning of chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? May Genoita. I hope you recognize Paul is doing everything in his power to express certainty. What is he so certain about? Well, he goes on to spell it out. And we'll look at that at verses 12 more carefully and closely tonight and then at verse 15. What is so certain? Well, he says in verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Or rather, mean. This uh, trespass that he's referring to as meaning riches for the world, and this failure that he's speaking of as riches for the Gentiles, Paul's just thinking of the many times that he himself had experienced it, where he'd gone and presented the gospel, the Jews, they'd rejected it, and he said, fine, I'll take it to the Gentiles. That was a pattern in Paul's ministry, as you all know. And now, what had happened at various cities and occasions in Paul's ministry, this is now happening on a global scale. The resistance of the Jews has hardened against this Jesus movement. And so, Paul is now devoting himself as a missionary to the Gentiles. That's his priority. And so, he says, their trespass has meant riches for the world or riches for the Gentiles. That is certain. That's absolutely clear. But so clear also is it that their full inclusion in God's salvation will bring even greater blessing. The word that's translated in your Bible's fullness or fulfillment in verse 12 or full inclusion. It's just the opposite of the present state of affairs. The present state of affairs is not all Israel. Matter of fact, just a small portion, a remnant of Israel has received salvation. Now he's saying the opposite of that. The full inclusion, that great number of Israel that is at present in rebellion will come to know the blessings of salvation. Paul is speaking of something that's assured. How much more will their full inclusion be? And Paul's actually at this point trying to excite you at the prospect of worldwide blessing when Israel finally comes to submit to the king that was sent to her. He's saying, look, if you think God has used Israel's rebellion for the good of the world, wait till you see what he does with Israel's faith. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what that means, what that will look like. Verse 15 is where he elaborates just a bit more. He says something very similar to what he said in verse 12. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That expression, life from the dead, many have believed that he's referring there to the resurrection. This is what the resurrection of all living, or all the dead is waiting for. This is what the resurrection was suspended upon, the conversion of the Jews. Others see this life from the dead, not quite so literally, but referring to a great time of blessing on the earth where all the world knows the blessing of the Jews coming in to the church of Jesus Christ. In either case, it's a blessing which the conversion of the Jews brings about for all the world. And again, Paul speaks of this as something that is assured. Their future acceptance 
he speaks of as just as certain as their present rejection. Now, if you've been looking at your Bibles and looking at verse 13 and 14, which I jumped over just a moment ago, you might see in those verses some note of uncertainty. And indeed, there is some uncertainty as Paul speaks in those verses about his part in this work of God. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Does the Apostle Paul know how much privilege he will have in provoking his countrymen to jealousy and having a part in their turning back to Christ? He does not know. He does not know how much of a role he will have. He is, after all, devoting himself to the missions, to missionary labors, to the Gentiles. But he hopes and prays that his part in reaching the Gentiles will have also play a part in this conversion of the Jews. He says, I, I want to save some. In my pursuit of the Gentiles, I'm also desiring to save some of my countrymen. And he's confident that that will one day take place, though in his own role, he is uncertain how much part he will have. Remember again what he has said. Has Israel stumbled to the point of falling, never to rise? May May it never be. We're going to look in just a moment at the second thing that I've put before you or will be putting before you. But let me, by way of some digression, point out that Paul himself digresses. In verse 16... All the way through verse 24, he begins to act pastoral again. He wants to give an exhortation particularly to Gentiles. And his exhortation is a call to humility. Yes, Gentiles, Jews were cut off in order that you could be grafted in. The image is here of a tree, an olive tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the root. The Gentiles are somehow now growing in this tree. They've been grafted in in the place where the Jews were cut out. And Paul's point here, we'll return to this in a future sermon. Paul's point is, don't let that go to your head. Don't become presumptuous. Of all things, don't do that, as Israel was. Recognize that you are only grafted in because of your faith. That's why you stand. They'll be grafted back again if they believe. This calls for recognizing the goodness and severity of God. But I want to point this to you in order that you might make better sense of that last note of certainty he gives in verse 24 on the heels of that exhortation to Gentiles. He says, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Here the Apostle is speaking again of Israel's future conversion as a nation. And he's making this simple point. Look, it is a great irregularity, something surprising, something unnatural about the branch from a wild olive tree being brought into the garden and grafted into this cultivated olive tree. That's what's unusual. That's what's strange. 
That's what you Gentiles are. That's contrary to all expectation. But there's nothing strange. There's something perfectly understandable and indeed inevitable, as the way he speaks, about restoring branches back to their own tree. That's how he speaks. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? He speaks there. The future conversion of the Jews as something that is natural and indeed even inevitable in light of what he said. But let's turn now. I've spoken of this thus far as a note of certainty. Now let's look at this word of mystery that Paul speaks. In verse 25, Paul does something he's been waiting a long time to do. He gives a name to the truth that he's been opening up. The name is mystery. Just the way he begins gives you a sense he's about to say something momentous. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Remember, he was still just then speaking, calling to humility. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. What is this mystery? What does Paul mean by that word? Well, you're almost guaranteed to misunderstand it because of the use that we make of that word, mystery. In our sense, and it's a very legitimate sense for us in which to use the word, a mystery is something that we don't fully understand. It's something that's not clear. It's something that goes beyond our, our intellectual abilities. It's a mystery. That use is also quite appropriate to use in various ways in the realm of Christianity. We speak of the Trinity as a mystery. Because ultimately we cannot fully understand how God is both one and three. But that's not how Paul uses the word. The word mystery, as Paul uses it, refers to something that God has kept secret in the times past, but now has revealed quite clearly. That's how the word mystery is used. And you can see it actually in the book of Romans. If you look at the last chapter... Chapter 16, Paul uses this word mystery here, as well as other writings, and he opens up exactly what he means by mystery. And I've tried to summarize it already. Verse 25 of Romans 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So mystery. Paul is speaking of something that he, as a New Testament apostle, is privileged to reveal to the church that has not been revealed to the church in times past. But the result of that revelation is that it's clear. It's now clear, though it was not in the past. Now, what would that be? What would that mystery be that he's speaking of? You might think that the mystery is this glorious fact that Israel, despite all appearances in the present day, the day that Paul writes, is one day going to be restored as a nation to, to God. That, you might be tempted to think, is the mystery. Because, after all, that's news to some of us. 
We don't fully understand how that's going to work. It sounds like that would be a mystery in Jesus' mind or part of Paul's mind. But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's related to that, of course. But let me put it to you this way. The thought, the reality, glorious as it is, wonderful as it is, that Israel will be restored one day is far from mysterious in the biblical sense of the word because this is no secret. God has been speaking of this throughout the Scriptures, throughout the ages. Why would it not be a mystery that God will one day restore Israel? Brothers and sisters, only because it's written on virtually every page of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as you read it, means just what it says too. Have you had that sense as you've read through the Old Testament and you've seen this pattern of God saying to Israel, you have been rebellious. I'm going to judge you. This is what it's going to look like. But in the last days, I'm going to bring you back to myself and it's going to be wonderful. Does that ring any bells? There's a lot of that in the Old Testament. Again and again and again, God is saying to his people, I'm going to punish you. It's going to look bad. It's going to look like this. That's not the end of the story. I'm going to restore you to myself. If you've had something nagging in the back of your mind, maybe I'm not supposed to understand the Old Testament to mean just what it sounds like it means with regard to Israel. Let me give you some hermeneutical relief. It's saying what it sounds like it's saying. One commentator just says this in an aside, but it ought to be written in all caps. The content of the mystery then is not merely that Israel would be saved in the future. That was quite evident in the Old Testament. What's the mystery then? What's new? What had God not revealed until the days of his apostles, and particularly through Paul? It's not that Israel will be saved, but when and how. When? This is new. Revelation. They'll be saved not before the rest of the world, but after. That's new. How will they be saved? They'll be saved actually by means of the salvation of the Gentiles. That's new. Don't, don't be seeking that mystery and spread across the page of the Old Testament. This is the mystery that Paul reveals. And we saw this morning that Jesus was already laying the foundation for it. Now that's what Paul says as he continues in verse 25 and 26. Look there with me as I sought to open it up. Look here to verify. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's the language that he'd used early in the chapter. The hardening's not total. There are some who believe, but there are a majority of Israelites who are hardened and God himself has done it. He says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's not what was expected. That's not what was expected. The timing of Israel's salvation being after the Gentiles? Oh, that's not what was expected. This hardening that God has brought upon Israel, that's not a permanent hardening. It's only until something else happens. It's only until the gospel has been heard and embraced by the Gentiles. God is only hardening Israel until the gospel is brought to the nations. 
But Israel did not expect that to be that way. Israel expected themselves wholly to enter into the salvation promised through Messiah. And only then the Gentiles to receive that blessing. That's not according to the expectation of Israel. Paul says, I'm telling you, this is the plan of God. Israel will be saved, you know that, but only after the Gentiles. And even more mysterious, I may speak that way, verse 26, he goes on to say, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. The emphasis that Paul is making, in this way, is what he talked about earlier in the passage How God has brought salvation to the Gentiles in order to create in the Jews envy, he says. Jealousy. Now think with me for a moment. That too was not what Israel expected. Israel expected that God would bring about such tremendous blessing to them in the final days that the nations around them would envy them. That's what they expected. They expected Gentiles to envy Jews. And Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery. All Israel will be saved, but they'll be saved in this way. Gentiles first. And Gentiles enjoying salvation in its fullness will bring about by the work of God's Spirit the conviction of sin and a desire for what for so long had been forfeited by the Jews. That's not how Israel expected it to happen. That's not when Israel expected it to happen. But Paul says, this is what God has had in mind. I'm telling you a mystery. And so, brothers and sisters, that enables you better to understand why it is that the Apostle moves from this in this climactic way saying, now I can tell you what is truly new revelation for our day. And how he can speak about the expectations of men being upset and turned upside down. And the result of it being that God's mercy is all the more glorified because not only are Gentiles delivered out of disobedience, but also Jews delivered out of disobedience. That's how he speaks in verse 32. That's what gives rise to Paul saying these things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable His ways. I hope you're able to see what had already come to take place in Paul's own heart and he's teaching it to those who are reading his letter. God is faithful to His promises. Has God rejected His people? Will their stumble result in a fall never to rise again? God will be faithful to His Word. You will be right in saying the whole book of Romans to this point has been upholding that truth. The righteousness of God on display in Jesus Christ. But there's still room for God to be faithful to His Word and yet to do it in a way that upsets proud men. That turns inside out those who trust in themselves, in their own works, in their heritage, their lineage, 
God has devised a way that he will both fulfill his word and all the more glorify his mercy as first Gentiles and only then Jews are brought to salvation through Christ. Now, we are not finished considering those things that Paul has said that make so clear that he is to be heard meaning just what he sounds like he means and all Israel be saved. And I've left for next time. Verse 26 and 27 where the Apostle underscores as he loves to do what he says from the Bible. In this case, from the prophecy of Isaiah. We return to that. Let me simply say to you, brothers and sisters, in my judgment, the hardest part of what we've been learning in Romans 11 is not understanding what Paul is saying. In my judgment, that's not the hardest part. To just drop one name this evening, Jonathan Edwards says nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews in Romans 11. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, the hardest part is not understanding what the apostles say. That's why those names that would be most familiar to you in Puritan and Presbyterian history have exalted in just this doctrine. It's not that which is hardest to understand what Paul says. The hardest part is believing it. It's believing. Could it really be that God has something like this still in store for those that He loves for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We in all of our associations or disassociations but those who call themselves Jews might see this as an abstract question. Paul does not. He sees the very righteousness of God at stake. He is emphatic. And at this climactic point in the book of Romans, he says, believe this. Expect this. Expect nothing less than this. And Paul would say, join me in praying for it. There's so much is riding on God fulfilling this part of His Word. We have heard this morning and God is honored by our expecting great things of Him. And what is needed to expect great things of Him is the strengthening of our confidence in His Word. God has given us a means that we now come to to do that. Please don't only think of your eating and drinking in remembrance of the crucified body and blood of Christ as a means of increasing your confidence in God in merely personal and private ways. Oh, it is a tremendous thing in that end, to that end. Brothers and sisters, it's also a great blessing for you to be nourished in your confidence that all that God has said He will do in this world, He will do. And He's provided a means 
for you to be strengthened in your expectation, your confidence. He could give you no greater means of doing that than the very emblems of Christ's death for you on the cross. Because his death was not just for you. It was for a vast multitude. And God has committed himself to save, not just you sitting here, but the sons and daughters of Abraham one day. So as you eat and drink, be strengthened in your faith in all that God has said.